Extra Daily Planet Extra. Episode 10 of Mana Screen Extra. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and it's been a while since I've put one of these out. Like, I, we, we were pretty fortunate through the latter half of 2016 when I was able to uh, put out a Mana Screen Extra episode uh, just about monthly, and uh, but that was only because I really had kind of something I wanted to talk about every month. Uh, I mentioned when I set this out with Episode 1 that Mana Screen Extra was going to be something I did when... Uh, Basically, I had the hankering to do something uh, outside the boundaries of the Man of Screen podcast. And I believe what I have on tap for you is definitely a little bit outside the boundaries, even though uh, even though the idea for this episode came from very much within the boundaries. For those of you who remember my coverage of the Deadly Rock part of the Adventures of Superman, which came out recently, you'll remember that... Robert Lowry, who played the role of Gary Allen, a friend of Clark Kent, starred in the second of two Batman serials, this one entitled Batman and Robin, which was produced in 1949. And up until that point, I had never seen the Batman serial, and I, I watched it basically out of curiosity on the recommendation of Bob Fisher, and, you know, it was watchable. I didn't think this particular serial had any problems the Superman serials didn't have. And obviously I'm not going to give this serial the full uh, five-episode coverage that I gave to each Kirk Allen serial. But I'm going to talk about this for basically until I run out of steam on it. But before I get to the regular business of this episode, I have some feedback to address from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen Extra number, episode number 10 from back in December. He writes, Greetings, Mike. Thanks for the Christmas Extra episode. I don't think I saw Santa Claus the movie when it first came out, and I've probably only seen bits of it on TV over the years. From what I recall of what I've seen of it, I think your assessment that the first half is the better part is certainly true. In any case, I think you did a fine job covering the movie, and I can certainly tell you have some affection, at least for the first half. It sounds like it's probably aimed at younger kids, as would make sense for a movie about Santa, but it might not hold up so well for grown-up sensibilities. I can understand that. I remember seeing Santa Claus Conquers the Martian when I was a kid, and at the age of eight, I thought it was silly and lame. So, Santa Claus the movie is Citizen Kane by comparison. Hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas, and that you have all the joys of seeing it through your daughter's eyes. Looking forward to you in the new year. Live long and prosper. Dave McElvenny. As always, thank you, Dave, for your feedback, and uh, yeah, I think uh, part of what I talked about when I did this episode... It's been so long ago now that I really don't remember what I talked about. But uh, I do have a lot more affection for the first half of the movie, which I have really believed was pure magic as kind of a Santa Claus origin story. But, but like I mentioned, I think even as a kid, I noticed that the movie didn't seem to be as good or as interesting once we got to the 1980s. But beyond that, you know, like I said, it's a movie I have affection for because I believe this is the first movie I remember 
seeing in the movies. And I think we might have even taken my sister, who probably would have been less than a year old at that point. Why my parents would have taken her at to the movies at that age, I'll never know. But I guess it's the same thing that inspired them to take me to see, at least my father, to see Return of the Jedi and Superman 3 in the same summer. But Yes, I agree that it's aimed for younger kids, but there's a lot of stuff that I've watched as a kid that I still enjoy, even with my grown-up sensibilities, if you can call them that. And so I don't know if it's that or if it just really is that bad and I'm just realizing it. So anyway, I'd like to thank Dave for his feedback. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play a promo. Then I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the Batman and Robin movie serial from 1949. Hang around, folks. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. (sighs) Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. Alright, welcome back folks. I'm going to head into coverage of the 1949 Batman and Robin movie serial. This was released by Columbia Pictures, which also released the two Superman serials. And it was also produced by Sam Katzman, who also produced the same Superman movie serials. And it cast Robert Lowry as Batman and Bruce Wayne. Like I mentioned, Robert Lowry would go on and appear in the season four episode the Deadly Rock, which I recently covered on the Man of Screen podcast with Bob Fisher. Johnny Duncan was Robin and Dick Grayson. Jane Adams was Vicki Vale. Lyle Talbot was Commissioner Gordon. For those of you who remember my episodes on the Adam Man vs. Superman serial, Lyle Talbot played the role of Luthor and the Adam Man. Ralph Graves is Winslow Harrison. Don C. Harvey was Nolan, a henchman. I believe Harvey also played the role of Albert in the Adam Man serial. William Fawcett was Professor Hamill. Leonard Penn was Carter, Hamill's valet, and the wizard. Rick Vallon uh, was Barry Brown, a radio announcer. Michael Whalen played the role of Dunn, a private investigator. Greg McClure played the role of Evans, a henchman. House Peters Jr. was Earl, another henchman. Jim Deal was Jason, another henchman. Rusty Westcote was Ives. Henchman. Rusty Westcote also appeared in both Superman serials. He played Carl in the Adam Man serial, and Westcote was Elton in the original serial with the Spider Lady. I don't recall his name being mentioned very often during the course of that serial, but there's his name. 
Eric Wilton played the role of Alfred Pennyworth, and George Offerman Jr. was Vic- Jimmy Vale, Vicky's brother and a henchman of the wizard. The serial was written by George H. Plimpton and Joseph Poland and Royal K. Cole, and it was directed by Spencer Gordon Bennett, both names that were very familiar to fans of the two Superman serials. I didn't really write a synopsis for this. And basically, it follows Batman and Robin over the course of 15 chapters, chasing a, a villain called the Wizard. None of Batman's regular rogues, even though some of them were in place by this time. I know the Joker was, at least. None of them really made any appearances in this serial. The Wizard has a device that he stole from, I guess it was a scientist or the government or something that can stop cars and control cars later on he can use it to become invisible and basically this serial is batman and robin's four-hour adventure to stop him this serial followed up from a previous serial from i believe it was 1943 just called batman however it's considered a sequel by some but none of the same cast appears in this one to the previous unlike the Superman serials in which the entire main Superman cast came back for a second run. There's definitely much more connective tissue between the two Superman serials than there is between the two Batman ones. Probably because both Superman serials were were produced by Sam Katzman, while only one of these Batman serials was produced by Katzman's production company. Being that this was produced by the same production company that did Superman the serials, this serial and the two Superman ones share a lot of the same DNA. The opening sequence is very similar. For those of you who remember the opening sequence from the Superman serials, basically it starts with kind of Superman landing on the screen. And this one starts with kind of Batman and Robin appearing behind the words Batman and Robin. So it's a very similar opening sequence. The The music is similar. The sets are similar. And I can swear some of... The cave that the wizard was hanging out in looked to be the same cave that the Atom Man would later use in the 1950s Superman serial, which was produced and came out a year after this one did. So, my thoughts on this? It's definitely the product of the 1940s, although it is much easier for the production crew to realize Batman than it is Superman. Obviously, Batman doesn't need to fly And he doesn't really swing around the city. He just kind of drives from place to place. There is no Batmobile. I am not 100% sure whether a proper Batmobile was established in the comics of the time. I believe it was, but I don't want to be held to that. Maybe someone out there who's read some old school Batman comics can help me out with that. But basically, Batman and Robin drive around in Bruce Wayne's car. Something that's brought up in Chapter 7. When Bob and I talked about the Deadly Rock, and we talked a little bit about this serial... I had mentioned that I'd only caught one chapter of either of the Batman serials years ago. I didn't even know which serial it was. I was glad to find out that it was chapter 7 of this one. But it's a scene in which Vicky Vale asks Batman and Robin if Bruce Wayne knows they dri- that they're driving his car. And Batman just kind of says yes. Surprised to find us alive? No, I didn't believe Barry Brown's report of your death. Why are you following us? Well... Did it ever occur to you that only the wizard's men would know of your supposed demise? What of it? Well, doesn't that mean that Barry Brown is tied up with them? Maybe even leading them? I've suspected Brown for some time. But you haven't answered my question. Does Bruce Wayne know that you're driving his car? Of course. You know, if I didn't know Bruce Wayne so well, I'd almost think that you and he were the same man. That's absurd. 
And you won't tell me where you're going, I'll tell you. You saw us on the way here, knew we were on a mission, and followed us to get some pictures for your magazine. Any objections? Not up until now, but this is as far as you go. Oh, is that so? And just how do you expect to stop me? By keeping your key. You mean you're going to keep me stranded out here in this... this wilderness? Not for long. As soon as I can get to a phone, I'll call Bruce and tell him to come get you. I was glad to see that scene showed up just because it was something I remembered. Like I said, I didn't really remember any of the serial beyond that. But one of the first actors I want to comment on is Lyle Talbot, who played Commissioner Gordon. Like I mentioned, I'm the only other thing I've really seen Lyle Talbot in is the Adam Man serial. And it's that voice, that deep, booming voice that Lyle Talbot projects works very well for Luthor, and it worked very well when he had to speak as the Atom Man, especially when his voice sounded like it had some echo attached to it, so he sounded a little more unearthly, I guess I want to say, but it's quite striking to me hearing that voice come out of Commissioner Gordon, especially because Talbot looks so different. I'm not sure, and I haven't had the opportunity to do this, but if you put up a picture of Commissioner Gordon from this serial and... Luthor from the Adam Man serial. I'm not sure the first conclusion you'd come to is that they're the same man. Maybe you would. I don't know, but he's so different here that I could definitely believe that that this wasn't Lyle Talbot, if not for that voice. I mean, like I said, the bald and clean-shaven Talbot was Luthor in the Adam Man serial, but he had some slick-back black hair and a mustache when he played the role of Commissioner Gordon. And throughout the whole serial, it was just weird hearing Luthor's voice coming out of Gordon. But that's not something that's really taking out of a serial. And I'm sure people who saw these things back in the 40s and 50s probably were not surprised to see the same actors over and over again. These serials are not meant to be binge-watched the way we do today. They're really meant to be seen one per week. Some of the other actors who have appeared in both this and the Superman serials, Leonard Penn was a henchman in the Superman serial. Phil Arnold played a doctor in Chapter 4 of this serial. He was the cab driver who drove Clark around in, I believe it was Chapter 2 of the 1948 Superman serial. Marshall Bradford played Mr. Morton, was Mr. Taylor, a chemical engineer, I believe he was, in the Adam Man serial. Jack Chief was a plant guard in Chapter 14 of this serial and played the role of Eddie in the Adam Man. Plus a variety of extras were in... This and the two Superman serials, and obviously the announcer's voice was the same. So like I said, a lot of framework used in the Superman serials were also in this serial, and that was a product of being produced again by Sam Katzman. The costumes are kind of ridiculous, uh, especially Batman's costume, which doesn't fit him. It was apparently something I read, I believe it was on IMDb, that the Batman costume was actually fitted for Kirk Allen. I don't know if this meant that Kirk Allen was meant to play the role of Batman after he played Superman, but it doesn't fit Robert Lowry. Apparently, Kirk Allen was a little bit bigger than Lowry, and that explains why Batman looks kind of thick. And the cow is all claws. looks like he's wearing a stocking cap. And the bat ears look like devil horns. And they're kind of slanted off to the side. I know they kind of look like that in some Golden Age comics kind of pointed out at a little bit of an angle, but not quite like this. For those of you who have children, they have these stocking caps, or ski cap, you know, for the winter. You know, they have a little dog ears or bunny ears or something like that, and there's a little thing that comes down the side of the hat, and the kid can squeeze it. 
and the ears will go up and down. The cowl kind of reminds me of that. You know, maybe if Batman squeezed a little pump, his ears would stand up straight. But my stepson and my own daughter had one when uh, a few years ago. He, My stepson was older than my daughter, had stopped wearing his to school because the kids on the bus were playing around with it. Haley never had that problem because she wasn't in school yet. And we had kind of made the decision after Corey's experience to not do that to her. So there's that. Plus, she hates wearing hats anyway, so. This serial, like just about everything else that was produced in 1949, was black and white. So, fortunately, you really don't lose anything in Batman's costume in black and white. Because, at least in my opinion, the natural colors of the Batman costume are black and gray. You know, obviously, you, you lose a lot in the translation for Superman because his red, blue, and yellow costume was really meant to be seen in full color. Now, one thing I do like about the costume is that Batman can drape himself in the cape like he does in the comics. Very few live-action costumes have been able to do that. But that's kind of a very iconic image of Batman with him with the cape draped over his body, going around it. As for the plot, it is your basic serial plot. You know, every 15 or so minutes, Batman or Robin get caught in some kind of situation that calls for a cliffhanger to drag the folks back into the seats for the next chapter. So, it is done very much in that format. It has a lot of the problems I had with the initial Superman serial, in which it, for those of you who remember the episodes when I covered the 1948 Superman serial, one of my complaints was that there were a, a lot of elaborate traps and Superman having to fail, kind of in order to keep the plot going over the course of the 15 chapters. I much preferred the way they did things in the Man serial, where, you know, natural disasters and things like that took up Superman's time. So the criminals would sometimes take a back seat to those things, and that would usually be where the chapter breaks would would be. So early on, we meet a professor called Professor Hamill, and he is, as I recall, he's the man who invented the uh, machine that could stop and take con- control of vehicles. He invented it, and he invented a neutralizer that'll come into play later on in the serial. He is paralyzed, and the first interesting thing we're going to see about him is that he puts himself in what looks like an electric chair and kind of electrocutes himself into walking. This serial spends a better part of its runtime trying to convince you that Professor Hamill is his wizard. And there are bad gadgets. In one chapter, Bruce Wayne puts together a burn negative, And the serial also gave me some thoughts, like wondering whether Commissioner Gordon knows Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson are Batman and Robin because... He shares a lot of information with them throughout the course of this serial that he probably shouldn't be. You know, it's almost like Bruce Wayne is the contact of Batman. Even though uh, Gordon has uh, a very 1940s looking uh, machine in his office that doubles as the bat signal. You're not going to see any bat poles in this serial like you will in the 1966 TV series and the movie that went along with it. But you will see that... When they need to, Batman and or Robin will get changed in the backseat of said car. And they don't keep their costumes in a special hidden closet like Superman would. They keep them in a filing cabinet. So, there you go. Throughout the course of the serial, Vicky Vale will believe that Bruce Wayne is Batman and she'll spend some significant time through this serial trying to prove that Bruce Wayne and Batman are the same person. And this goes right up to the end of the serial when Batman finds a way to disprove that theory to Vicky's satisfaction. 
One of the thing reasons why she doesn't believe that Batman is Bruce Wayne is because she's in her heart of hearts believes Bruce Wayne to be just a rich loafer who couldn't really be bothered with uh, the affairs of the people. So I guess Batman is the chief strategist that he is nowadays, but those who are used to a more modern Batman might find it a little strange seeing him get beat up as often as this Batman does. And also, being that it's black and white, it's very hard to tell if this action is taking place at night or during the day. I mean, we're not at a point yet in the Batman comics where they went super campy. At least I don't think so. I'm not as well-versed in Batman comics as I am. Well, I'm not really well-versed in any real Golden Age and Silver Age comics, but I do know more about when the boundaries are as far as the Superman line goes than I do about the Batman. So I'm not sure if in the comics Batman was running around during the day yet. He might have been. And personally, I'm not a fan of a Batman that runs around during the day. I prefer Batman to be much more of a night creature. Not necessarily dark and brooding, but out at night. That's why he's a bat. He's a bat to scare criminals, not to crack jokes at them. So in Chapter 8, Batman does a bit of stealth fighting to take out some men at a warehouse, and I really like that. That's very Batman-like, and it reminded me of the first time you you see Batman fight in Batman Begins, where, you know, he's not jumping into a room full of hostiles like he would in a previous film and just starts fighting them all he is plotting and hiding and doing what he can to basically keep himself alive through the course of this fight and that only lasts for a few minutes eventually after a while he's everybody's involved and he's fighting in the middle of the floor in front of the camera so they don't do the stealth fighting for too long just long enough to show us that he is attempting it and apparently failed and so still fighting within Chapter 8. By Chapter 13, the serial is still playing up the uh, suspicion that Hamill was the wizard, which is quite a difference from the following year's Adam Man serial, in which we knew Luthor and Adam Man were the same person from the get-go. But, you know, this serial is also very predictable. These common thugs get the best of Batman, and in the same chapter where when the Neutralizer is stolen, this is a device which will help the wizard become invisible, the thugs run off without the box, making it pretty clear that Batman and Robin were left for the decoy. You know, there are all the common tropes. There's a radio announcer throughout the course of this film, and he ends up, well, getting choked and rendered unconscious before he could reveal the wizard's identity. Why the wizard didn't kill him in that moment, I don't know, but he didn't. I guess it was an oversight on his point. You get towards the end, and the wizard goes out and about. You know, the wizard is dressed in a dark costume. He appears all black to the viewer. Basically, he's wearing a black button-down shirt and some slacks. And a very black hood. He looks like an executioner with a black hood over his face. And he's wearing a black cape draped over his shoulders. But he comes up with some way to turn himself invisible. So he kind of goes out and causes some trouble on his own. He choked out the radio announcer, Barry Brown. And he also attacked the commissioner's office while invisible. And Vicky was able to get a picture of him without his hood on. Using it in, you know, more of those Batman smarts that we're, that we're used to with an infrared flashbulb. So they identify the the wizard that way because apparently he wasn't wearing his hood. I don't know if he had decided to put it in his closet that day or... So like I said, I did like the idea of the infrared flash exposing the Invisible Man. But then the wizard gets caught making a phone call. And they send uniformed officers after the the Invisible Wizard. How exactly do you... What do you tell these guys? That the wizard is invisible and dangerous? How are they going to know? Or are they just going to arrest anybody that comes out of that door? Which I don't believe anyone does, but, you know, there's no real way to have uniformed police officers chase 
down an invisible man. Although they do pretty a pretty good job of it when they happen to see that a, a taxi. And then, you know, this episode pulls a do his ex machina on us. But we find out that Carter, who was Professor Hamill's aide throughout the entire serial, actually had a twin brother. Carter was actually the wizard while the twin brother attended to Professor Hamill. So uh, when they come in to arrest the wizard, Carter forces Hamill to act as though he's the wizard, but, you know, Batman sees right through it, through some stuff with fingerprints, and that's how they realized about Carter's twin brother, which kind of came out of left field. It wasn't really implied that he had a twin brother at any other point during that serial, and I just found it to be kind of a cheap way out. So like I had mentioned, with things end with Batman putting one over on Vicky as she asked him to join her for dinner with Bruce, but he accepts, and then Alfred plays a recorded uh, Bruce over a record player. Sounds like the kind of thing Superman would do to Lois, don't you think? And they all kind of have a big laugh as the serial ends. Like I said, this was not a great serial. It, it was watchable. I'll probably never want to watch it again. But, you know, just as somebody who's a fan of the superhero genre, I, I do enjoy seeing films and stuff from time to time. There are a few more other serials that I want to watch that I want to watch that are on my bucket list. I definitely want to see that Captain Marvel one that everybody talk, speaks so highly of. That's really all I got to say about that serial. You know, like I said, it kept me entertained at the very least. It's not the greatest thing in the world, and I believe some of the things people make fun of about Batman, especially in the Silver Age, you know, this is possibly to blame, although a lot of the blame should be shouldered by the Batman TV series, whether you like it or not. It does represent a very alternative take on the character. As the serial ends, they all have a big laugh, and it's also always very jarring when Batman laughs. So, there that is. Like I said, an entertaining serial. It probably wasn't the best way to spend four hours, but it had its ups and downs. And I thought Robert Lowry was good in the role. All the acting was good. It was on par with what you would see in a 1940s serial. So, Robert Lowry pulled off the role okay. Nothing special, but he did alright. So, that being said, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll play another podcast promo, and then I'm going to just come back and talk a little bit about what might be ahead this year for the Man of Screen Extra. Hang around, folks. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, when Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? All right, welcome back, folks. Before I go, I just wanted to mention a couple of... uh, you know, possibilities on the man of screen extra throughout the course of uh, this year. You guys haven't heard an episode of man of screen extra in about three months. That was, you know, by design, kind of. 
I had fallen a little bit behind on the main show, which is the priority. So even though I had some ideas for Man of Screen Extras, I didn't feel as though I had enough time to record and edit a Man of Screen Extra episode while I was still kind of completing re- episodes of the regular show right up against release date. I mean, even this extra episode is not going to be as long as most of the episodes that I do. So some of the things I'm planning to do that I'm hoping to do this year, I plan and hope to see Wonder Woman. I will hit a probably It might be one of the last movies I see before my second child is born at the end of July. And I am intending to see the Justice League film as well. Again, let's see if I can do something with the, ch- with the children for the day. You know, you, you kind of run into these things when you're the parent of small children. So, that's, those are two things I plan to talk about over the course of the episode. I'm hoping to bring some some guests on for those. See if I can get a little roundtable going. So, there's that. And I also want to talk a little bit about some of my other fandoms. Maybe once in a while. You know, I do like things other than Superman. And, uh, you know, maybe talk some Star Wars down the line. Or, just, or do some movie commentaries on any of the other uh, movies that I own. So... We're going to see. I'm going to get out of Man of Screen Extra as... And I'm going to get out an episode of Man of Screen Extra about as often as I'm willing or able to. And if you have any suggestions, feel free to send them over to me. Send me an email at manofscreen at gmail.com. Let me know if there's anything you want to hear me talk about. I mean, obviously, the format of the main show was locked into what it is. But, you know, Man of Screen Extra is basically here when I want to freestyle a little bit, when I want to go off the beaten path, so... If there's a path you guys want me to go down, let me know. And I'll, you know, kind of churn these episodes out as much as I can. I really don't have anything else for this episode of Man of Screen Extra. If you want to send me some feedback, you can email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group if you're so inclined to do so and join the conversation there. Just put Man of Screen Podcast into your search feed and the show should come up. Show's also on on Twitter at Man of Screencast. I highly encourage anyone to... Put a review on up on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. I don't know when the next episode of Man of Screen Extra is going to be. I hope it's before June when Wonder Woman comes out. But I don't know for sure. I have no immediate plans. I am hoping to make Comic-Con an annual Man of Screen Extra episode in August. In early, as the convention is in late July. But, but we will see. That was a lot of fun talking to Scott McGregor about the DC-related stuff that was unveiled at Comic-Con. Maybe I'll, that was kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing, but th- I'm hoping that's something I can plan out down the road. So, that being said, this is Mike Zumo. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll see you next time. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.